STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government, and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country at the University of New England in Armidale. Welcome back to Stories of STEMQ. This episode, I'm joined by the CEO of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Authority, Andrew McConville. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, James. Great to be here. Now, obviously, being the CEO of an organisation like APIA, I have no doubt that you're constantly bombarded with one particular question, and now more than ever, I'm sure that you're getting asked this non-stop, so let's get it out of the way early. What's going on with petrol prices? We've hit $2 a litre. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, look, petrol prices is, is a reflection of an international commodity market. Um, you know, oil is produced around the world and we are very much plugged into uh, an international oil market. And so that's what we're seeing. People are concerned about supply coming out of, out of Europe. Russia is a large supplier of oil, about 10% of the world's oil. Um, that's being constrained, and so you're seeing that reflected uh, in oil prices. I think the other issue for Australia is we historically have actually been able to produce quite a lot of our own oil, up to about 80%. At the moment, we're producing less than 30% of our own oil, and so we're very much plugged into those uh, those international markets. But you know, it's a reflection of market uncertainty around what's going to to happen. We're seeing it in other commodities like wheat prices, for example, because Ukraine and Russia are big wheat producers. So it's a consequence of being plugged into international markets. And generally, that's a really good thing. But sometimes there are downsides when you start to see these these international sort of geopolitical tensions emerge and the markets move very quickly. And that's what we're seeing here in Australia. I think longer term, you know, we're going to see oil prices drop away from where they are now. Um, you know, as we're doing this recording today, it's about $110 a barrel. We'll probably see that fall back to about $70 to $80 a barrel by the end of the year. But that's still going to translate into pretty high prices at the pump. You know, the, the days of you know, prices below $1.50 at the Bowser are probably not going to be around anytime soon, unfortunately. I still remember when it clocked over to above a dollar a litre. Yeah. So. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, no, well, I, don't, I don't think we'll see that again. It's interesting, though, that you say that you, you think it will drop in the future. So it, it, we're not just crystal ball gazing. It's likely that this isn't a, a trend. Yeah, look, it, I mean, markets do tend to follow patterns. And, uh, you know, the last time we saw this was around about the period of the um, global financial crisis where we saw prices um, leading into the global oil price, oh, sorry, the, the, the global financial crisis, um, you know, they, they went from about $9 a barrel in December 98 um, to $143 10 years later. And, you know, what we've seen this time is $9 in April 2020, and now we're at, you know, $110. So the speed with which perhaps prices have risen is a direct reflection of the uncertainty um, of of Europe and, and the geopolitical tensions there. But the pattern of these very large sort of rises and falls is something that we have seen many, many times before. Now, we're obviously all very familiar with our, our oil and gas suppliers, really. You know, we, we see their branding every time we pass the petrol pump. 
But an organization organization like Apia, it's it's not exactly a household name. So for for people that aren't familiar with it, what is it as as an authority? Is it a regulatory body? Is it an advocacy body? What yeah, what is it? We're, we're an advocacy body, James. Essentially, we we we've we've been around for more than sixty years, and and we are funded by what we call the E and P companies, exploration and production companies, the large upstream companies that go out, explore for, find for, and develop. Uh, oil and gas, of which Australia is very blessed with a very large uh, resource. So if you like, until the oil and gas gets into the pipeline of the member companies that, that I represent, and those members pay fees, and I have a team of about 25 people, and we engage in uh, advocacy principally, so we develop industry policy positions, and then we advocate those policy positions with state and federal governments, uh, international governments as well. Um, and then also... The, the stakeholder engagement aspects of that. So a lot of, I do a lot of media work talking on behalf of the industry um, on issues from climate change to supply of oil and gas to investments in local regional communities um, and, and pretty much everything in between. Um, so we have about 62 members uh, ranging from household names like uh, Exxon, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, BP, Santos, Woodside, through to very small frontier explorers that might have one or two wells um, at different places. So, um, and we we represent them and, and advocate uh, on on their behalf. And uh, we've been doing that for a long time. And it helps it helps the governments, if you like, uh, the way in which this works because we can be a single body that represents the entire industry. So, what we do is we develop industry wide policy positions on issues like climate change, um, issues like tax. Um, investment, uh, environmental regulation, that we then you know, work with governments, both at the state and federal level, to try and get sensible outcomes that you know, protect the environment, grow the economy, and make sure that we can continue to provide jobs. You know, our industry employs about 80,000 people um, and then about another 155,000 people in the supply chain. Um, we pay about 65 to $7 billion in taxes every year that go back into roads and schools and hospitals. And we've invested about $465 billion into Australia in the last 10 years. So it's a big industry and, uh, you know, it's important that we're able to continue to operate um, responsibly uh, with the community because at the end of the day, the resources that we develop are owned by the government or the Commonwealth or the people of Australia and we have to develop those in a way that provides a decent return and in a way that's, you know, responsible. So um, our job is to, to represent the members as we do that. You came on as CEO in about 2019, and I was really interested to find out that your background's actually not in oil and gas sector or mining or anything like that. How, where have you come from, and how did you end up where you are? Yeah, look, well, I studied agricultural economics at, at UNE. I was at Rob College and uh, did a did an agricultural economics degree, and I tried to study pretty hard. I got first class honours in agicos, and then. I went to Sydney and studied law, actually, and was studying law in Sydney and, and got the opportunity, actually, from the university to, um, I was awarded a scholarship. It was called the Keith and Dorothy Mackay Scholarship. And that allowed me to study overseas. And I studied at Oxford University and did a Master of Science in Agricultural Economics again. And so, yeah, I was an agricultural economist. I started work as an economist. And then over the years, continued to stay in agriculture, but evolved more into the public policy aspects of agriculture. So lobbying advocacy for, for different organisations that I worked for. And for a while, I ran a consultancy. I worked for myself as well, doing doing those sorts of things. Um, but always with ag as a focus. And I think that background that I got through UNE, being able to understand markets, 
um, at that microeconomic level was really helpful. Um, and then the exposure I got through different fields of agriculture was also very uh, instructive. And, and you know, UNE, in my experience, and I've run into a lot of UNE graduates around the world, produce graduates that are very practical, very pragmatic, um, and, and really, really good. And, and Australia and UNE, I think, punch way above their weight. So I was, um, my last role before I came to the oil and gas industry, I was ended up being global head of public affairs for a company called Syngenta, which is one of the world's largest agrochemical and seed companies. Um, I'd been with them for about 12 years. I spent uh, eight years in Singapore uh, as uh, head of public affairs for Asia. And public affairs means government relations, media relations, um, stakeholder management, internal communications, and in Syngenta sustainability as well. And then I went from there to Europe, was head of public affairs for Europe and Africa, and then ended up being uh, the global head of external affairs and, and communications. And so the issues that we were seeing in oil and gas around, uh, sorry, in, in agriculture around sustainability, stakeholder engagement, the increasing pressure on the sector to um, be able to demonstrate that it had a place in the world. And, and in that case, it was around being able to increase agricultural productivity, which was necessary to provide food security, i.e. feed the world, but do so in an environmentally sustainable manner, is very, very similar to what we're seeing in oil and gas. So the need to um, improve environmental outcomes, which essentially means decarbonising on oil and gas, or as, it, as we transition to more renewables and alternative sources of energy, how do we manage that? But at the same time, ensuring that um, you know, we have energy security, energy stability. Um, and so a lot of the issues are very, very um, similar. And, and you know, I almost drive people to distraction now in the oil and gas sector where I say I've seen this before because I saw a lot of it in, in oil and gas and the role that activists play, the emergence of uh, ESG, so environmental social governance frameworks, the importance of sustainability, the need to provide a key economic want, so or need. If you look at if you look at economic growth around the world, um, it, it, it's based on two things: food security and energy security. Um, so the first thing a farmer wants to do to move from being a subsistence farmer is to feed himself and his family. And then once they start to make a bit of money because they become more more productive through the use of agricultural technology, then they send their kids to school. And then what they need to do is they need a, a reliable supply of energy in order to re refrigerate food and keep the lights on so their kids can study. And that cycle of sort of lifting out of poverty through food security and energy security is repeated time and time again around the world. And whilst we here in Australia take for granted our energy security, there are about 600 million people to the north of us who don't have energy security and actually about 2.6 billion people worldwide that don't have access to a reliable supply of energy. Um, and you know the, the simple reality is that um, whilst renewables will over time um, become more and more that source of energy, for many, many countries around the world, that's just not yet possible. And so they do rely on fossil fuels or hydrocarbons, so coal, oil and gas, um, to, to produce energy. And energy security is what has delivered us the standard of living that we have. And so many of these countries now say, well, we want to enjoy that as well, so we want access to a secure supply of energy. And even here in Australia, if you look at the energy mix right now, only 6% of Australia's total energy, so energy, not just electricity, energy comes from renewables. 30% um, of Australia's energy comes from gas. About 40% um, of, of Australia's uh, energy comes from uh, oil. 
and then about 25, 28% from coal. So you know, even if we wanted to go to 100% renewable energy today, it's just not possible. And so we need to make sure that we have an industry like ours to, to be able to assist in that transition. And I just saw that as something that was really interesting. And, uh, and so when I was approached a couple of years ago to take on the role, I thought, well, maybe I can take what I learned in agriculture over 25 years and apply it here. And I suppose, pleasingly, James, that's exactly what's happened. Um, you know, the, the parallels are absolutely uncanny. And I'm just so, so grateful for what my education at UNE equip me with to understand markets, to understand poverty, to understand how economies develop, um, to understand how risk is managed, to understand how pricing occurs. All of these fundamental things that go into an agricultural economics degree um, have been central to my work right through my career. And the other point I'd make is a small university like UNE gives you a wonderful opportunity to, to do a lot of things. And I think the confidence that UNE gave me to speak to, to be an advocate, to, to engage with people, um, has again stood me in good stead. And I find that with UNE graduates around the world who I run into all the time. They are very confident, competent, capable people, but they're very pragmatic and they succeed in the real world. And I think we should be extraordinarily proud of that. You've come into this role in a time when there's really been a seismic shift in how these conversations are being had. I mean, I mean, to put it bluntly, we have you know, the guy who famously bought a lump of coal into Parliament in the top seat and is now signing us on to net zero carbon emissions policies. So the, the, you know, the conversations that you must be having, I imagine, are very, very different to the ones that your predecessors might have had. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, if, if you look back just 10 years, I mean, no one was, no one really thought very much about oil and gas. You know, you went to the Bowser, you put the petrol or diesel in your car, you turned the heater on when it was cold. Um, and, and, you know, and and the world has changed. And that's a good thing. And the world has realised that, you know, the burning of hydrocarbons is a major contributor to, to climate change. Um, and so the, the equation now is, how do we how do we manage both? How do we walk and chew gum at the same time? And how do we get to net zero? And it's important to remember it is net zero. It's not zero emissions. We could never have zero emissions because the simple act of a human breathing emits um, you know carbon monoxide into the atmosphere. You know a cow a cow burping a cow farting emits a lot of uh, methane into the atmosphere. So we could never get to zero emissions, but we can get to net zero emissions. And we actually think that our industry can play an incredibly important part in that. And as an industry, um, we have a very, we actually beat the government. Um, we were committed to net zero way before the Australian government was was you know committed to net zero. And, and we actually think that with the sorts of technologies that we have in terms of how we essentially develop resources, you know, develop gas, store gas, move gas, use gas, um, manage gas, that we can actually play a really important role there. And the role that technology can play in helping to decarbonise that. And also that, you know, we do think, we know that particularly gas, not so much coal, um, and, and gas has about half the emissions of coal. So you get this coal for gas, this gas for coal replacement. Um, but the role that gas will play in allowing us to have a lot of renewables in the system, so it can firm up the system. Um, and then if we can help decarbonise that gas through different technologies, then, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too. And, and we think that that's very, very important but absolutely you know we have a crucial role to play in uh, helping with the energy transition helping with energy complementarity and so you're right James 90% of my work now is what are the policy environments that need to support that transition um, what are the policy environments that can support um, different energy systems 
what are the policy environments that um, can make sure that economies and communities that have um, been reliant or dependent on the development of resources for so many years can manage a transition to something different. Um, and, and, you know, I think when you t start to think about all of those things, yeah, it, it's not a case of simply now developing a policy that I can go and explore and find as much oil and gas um, as I need. In fact, we probably don't need to go and find much more oil and gas. We know where it all is in Australia, but we need to think of ways in which it can be developed in a manner that's environmentally, socially responsible um, and supports that, that energy transition. And, you know, my brother's a, a farmer. I mean, I understand you know, the environment as well as anyone. And I think that, um, you know, we can do both. And, and we've also got to think about, if you like, Jones, the, the end goal here is net zero. No one's disputing that. No one's doubting that. None of my members dispute that or doubt that. A number of my members actually have net zero commitments by 2040, not even 2050. But it's like we're driving down a highway, uh, an energy highway, and, and the end goal is net zero. And different technologies will you know, represent different lanes of the highway and the cars will go at different speeds. And we need all of those tools, if you like, available to us to, to, to get to net zero. And you know, one of the great things about humankind is their ability to innovate um, their way out of challenges. And, you know, for those who might be listening to this podcast who have an agricultural or a history background, you know, in 1798, there was a philosopher by the name of Thomas Malthus, and he developed a thing called the Malthusian Prophecy, which was that the world would starve itself because the rate of population growth was exceeding um, the rate of agricultural productivity growth. And yet we haven't starved and we haven't died because mankind has innovated its way out of that problem. And we will now be able to feed 10 billion people, which is peak population growth, um, and beyond. So we've become food secure. And I firmly believe that we are also doing the same with um, the use of you know, hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, that we will innovate our way in terms of how we can use less. And the fossil fuels that we do use, that we need to continue to manufacture things where there's no replacement, that we can decarbonise those fuels so that we can get to our net zero goals. So you know, I don't think we should despair. And for those who, who might be out there thinking, well, I don't want a career in oil and gas because you know, that's hydrocarbons and I want a career in, in renewables. What I would say is quite the contrary. We need smart young people like you and me as producing to come in and help us solve these challenges and help us address these these dilemmas, if you like, of how can we have energy security and stability and net zero. So we need smart young STEM graduates out there to come into the industry and say, well, we can solve this problem. We can, we can help us get to net zero quicker um, while still having all the things that we take for granted as a society. So... I think the role that science is going to play in technology is going to be absolutely crucial. And so a lot of my role is now advocating for that and making sure that we get the investment needed from the investment community to make sure that that can happen. So it's it's very different to my predecessors, but I would suggest, James, it's a lot more fun. <laughs> like you said, there, there might be a bit of a, I don't know, would you call it a, a PR problem with STEM graduates, yeah, looking at oil and gas and going, oh, I don't think that's where I can contribute. It's not where I want to be. How, how can you convince them otherwise? Yeah, look, it, it is hard, James. I mean, we, you know, I find one of my biggest challenges is, is finding people, um, and it's different in different geographies. I have a hard time finding people in Canberra, which tends to be um, what I would call a very liberal sort of area of society versus, say, Western Australia or Queensland, where the resources sector is a bigger contributor to that economy, I tend to find it easier to get people. So when people understand, they're more likely to engage. So um, 
we do a lot of uh, a lot of work like this talking to universities. Um, I, I talk a lot to vice chancellors about how we can promote STEM in, in universities. Um, a lot of our members have really strong graduate programs um, to to try and get out there and just spending time. You know, being prepared to if you like lead with your chin and have the conversations like we're having today to talk about the role that oil and gas can play, and not not stepping away from the challenges that our industry presents, but saying, look, we get that, but we need solutions and you know, I'm very much a solutions-driven person, and, and I want to solve this. So, you know, you can tend to create um, a sense of excitement with with young people. I mean, ag was in this what I would call this dilemma. I reckon about ten to fifteen years ago, we were finding it really hard to attract people to, to agriculture. You know, people didn't want to come and work in a pesticide company or a seed company. And one of the things that agriculture did was it pivoted around this need to achieve food security and um, and sustainability at the same at the same time, and you know agriculture is now a booming industry because people are seeing that I can actually contribute to a big challenge: food security, agricultural productivity, whilst being sustainable. And and we're seeing you know a boom in agriculture in many ways. And I think it's the same here. What you've got to do is continue to just repeat that narrative and make sure that people understand that the end goal is the same. And so it, it's getting out having having the conversations, if you like, and having um, all of the engagement on an ongoing basis. You're never going to solve this with one conversation or one single engagement. But I think recognising people's concerns, listening, being empathetic to that, and then saying, okay, well, let's let's talk about how we can be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And, and you know, that's very much my political mandate as well. Understand the context in which we have to operate understand the objectives of society, which are represented through politicians, and then say, okay, how can we be part of that solution? What can we contribute? And I think that's my that's my case, if you like, to young people is to say, well, how are you going to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem? And and once you start to shift that dial, I mean, young people today are pretty smart. Um, we do find that it, it, it shifts, but it's, um, it's persistence, James. You've got to get out there. You've got to lead from the front. And you've got to be prepared to have the conversations. And I think, you know, that's where UNE graduates are really good. Um, they're happy to do that. So I think we shouldn't be shy. Um, we should continue to engage and we should, you know, be prepared to say there are wonderful opportunities because my members are some of the biggest companies in the world, Chevron, Exxon, Shell, uh, BP here in Australia, Woodside, Santos. You know, you can have an amazing career um, in a company like 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 one of these member companies from from being a you know a petroleum engineer or being a construction engineer, um, being a geologist, um, you know, drilling rig contractors, right through to being you know accountants and doctors and you know these companies employ everyone and and you can get to see the world at the same time and work in some really interesting places. So you know I wouldn't I wouldn't close one's mind to it. Um, you know all I would ask is anyone out there listening enters into a conversation with an open mind. Um, and, you know, open minds lead to good solutions. So we've mentioned decarbonisation and reaching net zero. What does that actually look like on the ground? Are we talking carbon capture? Are we talking reforestation? What, what What's being developed? Yeah, it's a great used? question, James. It, it, look, it's going to be a combination of things, really. Uh, I mean, um, let's talk about hydrogen first. So certainly the pathways to hydrogen is going to be a significant um, a step in helping with decarbonisation because you know, hydrogen emits nothing other than water um, when it's when it, when it's burnt. It's a difficult product. Um, it's difficult to move. It's difficult to store. Um, it's it's quite it's quite volatile. But um, you know if you turn it into ammonia, it's much more uh, efficient. And 
there are different pathways available to producing hydrogen. Hydrogen, I think, will revolutionise the transport industry in, in particular. Um, it's not easy. Uh, it's not as easy as people make out. And you know, people talk a lot about different colours of hydrogen. If you're a buyer of hydrogen, you don't care what colour it is. You just want hydrogen to put in your trucks or your ships or your, you know, your whatevers. I think production-wise, there's a huge opportunity for Australia in both what we call blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced from natural gas, and green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced through the electrolysis of water. Um, on the blue hydrogen side, we can do that now. We do do it now. Um, and I think that's going to be really important for Australia to get a big toehold, if you like, in the global hydrogen market. If we wait until we can produce green hydrogen at scale, I think we will lose the opportunity to be a hydrogen leader in the world. So let's start with blue, which is... Um, it's called steam methane reforming. It's a process whereby uh, methane is, is one molecule of carbon, four molecules of hydrogen, separating that out. You can take the carbon, you can use it in the production of carbon-based products. You can re-inject it into the, into the earth. Um, so you've got a useful product there. And then you've got your four molecules of hydrogen. And then green hydrogen is uh, basically running electrical current through water. Um, so the idea is that you use renewable energy to run that through water. Um, and you produce your, uh, through a process of electrolysis, produce your, your hydrogen in that way. And that's, that's a, a very good process. It takes a lot of energy. Um, so it takes a really reliable supply of renewable energy. Um, and, and then also it takes a fair amount of water to be able to use. So, you know, we have to think about the competing uses for energy and water in that process. So I think it's going to be both. So hydrogen is, is uh, a big one and we'll see that revolutionize the transport sector. Um, it's very much in demand from some of our major customers like uh, Korea, Japan. Um, we won't see it so much in the home. Um, we would have to build an entirely new infrastructure network. You can only put about 10% hydrogen in the, in the existing gas infrastructure network um, because it corrodes the pipes really quickly. Um, if you've got polyurethane pipes, then you, can, then you can run it. But most of the gas networks in Australia are not polyurethane because of the pressure. Um, so it's not as simple as just putting it into the existing pipeline. So you've got to think about the infrastructure. And shipping is difficult as well because natural gas, when you produce LNG, it compresses 600 times. Hydrogen compresses less than 60 times. So it's hard to get a lot of hydrogen into a vessel. So there's going to be some constraints, but hydrogen is going to be really, really important. And then the other you mentioned is carbon capture, which is probably the other major way in which you decarbonise a hydrocarbon. Um, and, you know, people... Uh, have some concerns about carbon capture and storage. The starting position is, oh, it doesn't work. That's not that's not true at all. We've been doing carbon capture and storage around the world for more than 40 years. Um, there's about 110 million tonnes of storage uh, exists at the moment. It's growing at about 40% uh, a year, and it's a very straightforward process. Um, it's about taking carbon and re-injecting it into um, the geology, often where the gas has come out of, uh, and what happens is it expands and stays there immemorial. Um, or alternatively, you can actually find aquifers that are um, able to have the carbon injected into them without having actually anything else extracted. Um, and here in Australia, we, we currently have the world's largest carbon capture project, uh, Gorgon in WA, stores about a million and a half tonnes a year. Santos actually just this week announced a carbon capture and storage project which will kick off in 2024, which will be the largest project um, in the world. And what the International Energy Agency says is that under any of the what we call the sustainable development scenarios where we get 
to net zero and we get to climate change of under 1.5 degrees, carbon capture will be responsible for about 15% of global um, uh, emissions reduction capacity and capability. And what that will require is about a hundredfold increase in the use of carbon capture and storage. And then you get into more blue sky technology like carbon scrubbing. So you actually can scrub carbon straight out of the atmosphere. Um, and Santos has a, 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 a test plant out in the Cooper Basin where that is underway. And I think increasingly we'll see those sorts of technology. So again, I think it's not the case of saying, you know, you're, you can't use this form of technology. I think we need absolutely every technology we can. And then over time, as demand for hydrocarbons drops off, then, you know, you need to use less and less of that and, and you start to see alternative sources of energy, whether that be stored uh, stored hydro, uh, obviously wind, solar, geothermal, um, all of these other sources of energy. So we need every we need every trick in our tool bag and, and carbon capture uh, will be one of those. And for our industry, it's probably the major one. And, you know, we can buy offsets, but not at the scale needed. And we do buy a lot of offsets. Um, you know, we trade carbon in global carbon markets, but we need something at scale. And carbon capture is a very safe, uh, very well understood uh, technology that is available to help us undertake large scale emissions reduction as we go through this this energy transition. But it's one tool. It's not the answer. It's going to be one of a lot of things where we, we help reduce emissions. You mentioned a couple of questions ago, the, I guess, the makeup of energy production in Australia and the share that renewables provides versus coal and gas and things. Given the changes that are going to need to take place in the future, are we expecting, I guess, a shrinking of oil and gas industries or a shifting in the role? What, what do we predict? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, 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 you know, certainly we would expect at the moment, if you talk about electricity, um, you know, we're seeing renewables now provide about 30% of electricity, which is actually more than gas. Gas only provides about 25% of Australia's electricity. But then um, only about one third of gas use is for electricity. The rest is used in manufacturing. So we're seeing the uptake of renewables is the fastest in the world. And that's a great thing. That's a really great thing. Um, but we're starting to get to the point where there's some challenges in terms of the system being able to cope with these intermittent renewables coming in and how do we manage um, system stability, uh, if you like, because at the moment we don't yet have the storage available for managing renewables. So people talk about the Tesla battery in, in South Australia. Um, you know, that was the first really big battery that was built in Australia. Um, it has the capacity to power South Australia for about six minutes. Um, so that's now it plays a really important role. It really does. But we don't yet yet have the technology where batteries are large enough to to deal with you know, the, the sorts of cyclicality, if you like. And the energy system needs to run um, at about well, not at about it needs to run at 50 hertz uh, a second, which is about 3000 revolutions per minute, um, 24 hours a day. And if that drops below that, if it drops below about 49.75 for more than six seconds, you start to see these rolling blackouts. Um, and so energy stability and security is really important. So we need we need that and, and, and the system isn't yet there. It will come. It will absolutely come. But, um, you know, we're, we're getting to the point now with the inflow of renewables into the energy system that there's some more work that needs to be done before we can sort of take too much more. But to the point of your question, will we see the decline in the in the use of fossil fuels? Absolutely, we will. Um, so what we'll first see is the switching out of coal for gas, because gas has about half the emissions of coal when it's burnt. Um, so we'll see that. And that's happening a lot in, in China. And they estimate coal to gas switching has already reduced global carbon emissions by about 600 million tonnes a year. 
Um, and then over time, you'll see uh, the, the use of gas, certainly in Australia, decline. Um, to what extent, we, we don't fully yet know, but um, certainly there's a demand profile well beyond 2040 in Australia. What I think we'll see, James, is that gas will be used, but it'll be used in different ways. So it'll be used for firming up the grid uh, in electricity, so we don't have that, that intermittency problem. Um, so you'll, you, your coal stations will fall out, you'll have renewables, large batteries, and gas. And that's how that system will work, and then you decarbonise your gas. Um, I think you'll continue to see gas in manufacturing. So, so many of the things that we take for granted, metal, steel, uh, aluminium, glass, plastics, um, you know, anything that's made with petrochemicals is, is, is made with gas. Fertiliser, incredibly important for, for the world. These things um, are made by gas and, and, you know, there's not a lot of alternatives. And, and also in the home heating and so on, you know, 86% of Victorian households have a gas connection. Um, it's the highest in Australia, more than 1 million households for, for cooking, for, for heating, for, for showers and so on. So, you know, the transition is going to take, take time, but it will change over time. You start to get to a point, though, where you get into some interesting economic conundrums. So whilst you or I, you know, well-educated, uh, you know, people with good, good, steady jobs, we might be able to afford the cost of shifting out of gas infrastructure in our homes to electric heat pumps and so on. When you get into lower-income housing, um, are they able to do that? Or are they able to meet the cost? And you get into some interesting socioeconomic costs. So it's not as simple as just saying this is what we'll do. But we will see demand in Australia decline over time. Where we won't, at least in the period out to 2050, is in Asia. Um, the International Energy Agency um, forecasts that demand for gas in Asia will increase by 52% between now and 2050. And that's because they're shifting out of coal and that's because their economic, that cycle I talked before about the cycle of breaking out of poverty through food security and energy security, um, they're moving into using using gas. So they move away from burning wood, uh, burning dung, which would have terrible impacts on the environment, obviously burning coal into burning and burning kerosene into burning gas. And so demand is, is very strong. And so you'll continue to see a really strong export industry for Australia probably out to 2040, uh, 2050. Anything beyond that gets a bit hard to forecast, but I would say, yeah, you're going to see slowly declining demand in Australia, alternative uses of gas, firming, um, gas with decarbonising solutions in the manufacturing space, but this strong export industry um, out, to, out, out to 2050. Coal, on the other hand, I think, yeah, we are already seeing that very rapid drop-off and decline as the other hydrocarbon, um, if you like, gas is a bit of a Gas is a more flexible product, so you start to see that. That said, just to conclude, um, metallurgical coal will continue to be exported from Australia to, to drive manufacturing in, in many countries around the world for the foreseeable future as well. And I guess my final question to sort of reflect back on what we were saying before, you know, we have you as an advocacy body uh, talking about a decline in, in an industry, which I imagine is terrifying to certain people in that industry, but... I guess, has this change in the political landscape that we talked about before made it easier or, or sort of given permission for, for a person like you to have these conversations without uh, uh, upsetting some stakeholders? Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really insightful question. And, and, and look, I think it's just about being a pragmatist. I mean, I think, you know, I work with, I have a board of 16 CEOs and they're very, very smart people. And I think we're all pragmatic enough and realistic enough to, to realise that, that the world changes. I mean, 
what they're very focused on, my member CEOs, is how can we innovate our way through some of these challenges and are there technological alternatives available and what are the alternatives? We're seeing companies um, shift their focus. So you, you look at Shell, for example, you look at BP, they're becoming integrated energy providers. Uh, Shell just recently announced a very large purchase of a renewable energy company here in Australia, more than $700 million. So they are doing different things and seeing different things and, and, and adjusting to that transition. So none of us, I think, are so naive as to stick our heads in the sand and say the transition isn't happening. It is. It's about you know looking change in the eye and saying, well, what can I do to make sure that I can be part of the solution and not just be part of the problem by saying I resist change. And that's very much where we come at it from. And I think you're right to the other part of your question, does that change the role or, or does it make my role different, perhaps more interesting? 100% it does because you know, I need to advocate for sensible climate change policies as much as I do for sensible taxation policies to encourage the sort of capital investment that we need to adopt the technology. So it, it has changed perhaps some of the conversations that I have and I spend a lot of time talking to investors and other people about these issues. So it, it changes the role, but I don't think it lessens, doesn't lessen the need for good advocacy for any industry. Um, you know, I just came off a call with the Business Council of Australia where we meet every two weeks with pretty much about 25 industry associations from, you know, retail to airports to mining to anything, you know. Um, and And we all have a role to play. And I think that's the case here as well. And the important thing is to remain relevant and the important thing is to understand that change happens and what's the important role that we can play in driving that change. And you know, it, it comes back to the point around you know, STEM graduates and what's the role they can play. You know, I think the genuine question you have to ask is if you see a problem, don't just state it's a problem. What can you do to be part of the solution? And I think you know, good young STEM graduates are going to be part of the solution to ensure that we can, you know, keep climate change to less than 1.5 degrees to ensure that we have food security, energy security, all of these sort of things that we've taken as fundamental human rights that are now being questioned by a change in the global order. Um, you know, we need smart people to be able to do that. And I think one of the things that I've learned over my many years is just to be, be curious and be intellectually flexible enough to, um, to front into a problem. And, and so, yeah, my role has changed. It's changed even in the three years I've been here in terms of the sorts of issues I advocate on. And I expect if we had a conversation in three years' time, it'd be different again. But you know, having the the intellectual elasticity, if you like, to be able to respond to that is key. And and that's where you know really strong education comes into it. And that's why you know, we need good young people to look at the opportunities that might exist in an industry like ours to come in and be part of that solution. Um, you know, not just stand on the outside and say, well, you're part of the problem. And, you know, I, I'm very confident that we can do that. And, you know, it's a, it's a great privilege to be able to lead an industry like ours to try and find some of those solutions. Well, it's 2022 now and 2050 is not far away, really. So, uh, yeah, let, let's schedule in another one of these chats in, what, <laughs> what 20 years? And yeah, uh, no, look, we're right. I'd, I'd be delighted. You know, I really would because we are making enormous <laughs> progress. And, um, you know, I think Australia has very has a lot to be proud of um, and, uh, you know, I just want to be part of that and I think you're right. I, it, it's, it's a bit like the development of computer technology where you sort of get that, I don't know, was it Moore's Law where things double every couple of years. It's the same. I saw it in agriculture for 25 years. I'm seeing it in, in the resources sector now. You know, technology and innovation um, is the answer and I have every uh, confidence that mankind will innovate its way out of the challenges it's facing with climate change and, you know, we'll continue to be able to to have a life and a standard of living that 
is, is meaningful whilst also addressing these challenges. So, yeah, I'd be more than happy to come back in a couple of years and see the progress we're making. All right. Well, let's book it in. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure, James. Anytime. Thanks for joining me here on the STEMQ podcast. Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct.